0: Welcome to Writers on the Beat, where crime writers meet crime fighters. I'm your host, Gavin Reese. Every episode of this podcast will bring in a variety of experts to help writers of all genres incorporate more authentic cops, crime, and criminals in their stories. Sitting across the interrogation room from me today is critically acclaimed author James Latourelle. James's uh, previous experience before writing, he spent about two decades in the uh, uh, prison and probation systems. He's worked in uh, probation, parole, investigation, and prison operations. He's an experienced associate warden, chief of institution operations, hostage negotiator, and a director of parole. All these things make James really unique among crime fiction authors and bring a really, uh, really unique perspective to his writing. As an author, James is a critically acclaimed fiction author and has been recognized by the Creative World Awards, Acclaim film, and the Scriptapalooza television script competition. One of his works, Bury the Past, was a 2018 Killer Nashville Silver Falchion Award finalist for the best procedural of the year. And his writing is incredibly gritty tr- incredibly gritty crime fiction with complex, edgy stories fueled by these two decades of experience. James, welcome to Writers on the Beat, and I'm so glad you're joining me today.
1: Gavin, thanks for having me on the show. I really appreciate it.
0: So first... Uh, one of the things that I I really try to focus on with our podcast here is how, uh, how authors bring their own personal experience, real world, real world experience into fiction writing. And uh, can you talk to us about that, how that process started for you with, uh, with your fiction?
1: Sure. Um, I don't think I set out early in my, my career in in corrections and law enforcement, you know, thinking in the future I was going to be writing crime fiction. Uh, But one of the, one of the early jobs that I had as a probation officer, I was preparing pre-sentence reports. And basically you're, you know, you're reviewing the, you know, the arresting officer's reports. You're talking to the uh, defendant up in, you know, in the jail, you're getting victim statements and you're kind of, what I know now is you're putting together a crime story. Mm -hmm. Um, And so you'd present that to the, you know, the sentencing judge and, you know, off the, off the guy would go. And I think it prepared me for, for what I'm doing now, because you'll never have a critic of your work more vocal than a defense attorney who's looking at his client going off for 25 years to life.
0: I had never considered that. That's a fact. <laughs> <laughs> now the um, How do you bring authenticity from your personal experience into your writing without giving away tactics, without giving away investigative strategies that are, that are being used today or um, how can someone, how do you make sure that people don't use your books for malicious, malicious purpose?
1: Sure. I, I think some of the, some of the procedures and tactics and, and, uh, strategic stuff that, that we use. Um, I think most readers, just the generic readers would be bored to tears with, with our <laughs> procedures. So I kind of leave that stuff out. Um, and, and kind of, kind of create the story with just the, the bare bones of, of getting from, from one place to, to another and, you know, overcoming one obstacle or another. They don't need to know, uh, you know, how many how many backup staff we've got or how many, mm-hmm. uh, how we would respond to a certain, you know, hostage situation or anything like that. Um, and, for example, in At What Cost, uh, the first book in the Detective Penley series, uh, that story came from, uh, an in-prison experience, but not so much, you know, strategic kinds of things, but just the, the kernel of the idea came from, uh, the day-to-day, uh, operations in the prison.
0: Okay. The, um, one of the, the big, um, big issues that I have as a, as a, as a cop and, uh, writing, but also, uh, as a, as a reader and as a, a fan of TV and film is watching all of the inaccuracies and the, and the things that, that are just so far in, basically impossible in, in law enforcement. Right. Um, you know, and you know, my, it's the point, you know, my wife doesn't really even like watching a lot of, a lot of cop shows with me or, or crime shows because of that. Um, from your experience, what do most people get wrong about their fictional prison settings, uh, or their fictional investigations, versus what the real world is like.
1: Yeah. I kind of have the same. um, I think I'm with, with your wife in this, I can't watch a lot of it on, Mm -hmm. on the television shows because it's just so inaccurate. And I, Mm -hmm. and I get that the, that the writer is trying to create this, this feeling in this world. um, But it's just uh, like orange is new black. Everybody Mm -hmm. loves the show. I can't stand it. It's just so, um, so out there. (laughs) But Uh, it's, it's based on a true story. Oh, well, <laughs> sure. Somebody went to prison. Okay. Yeah. But beyond, based on. Yeah. But beyond that, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's difficult to kind of explain what, like, just taking a prison, for an example, it's, it's difficult to convey in a, in a short television show uh, what that environment feels like. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think we have a little bit more flexibility in, in, the long form fiction writing where we can kind of, you know, explain and unroll of this, this environment, um, in a little bit more, um, accurate and kind of detailed way that gets, brings the reader in to understand what this, um, environment is and how all the different players, uh, on both sides of the fence, uh, interact with one another.
0: You some of the things like, um, if you look at kind of the stereotypes of, of the way that prisons and the people all inside there are kind of typecast, right? The, there's always, uh, incredible perpetual violence, um, incredible perpetual racism, incredible perpetual corruption. Um, and in my personal experience, having never worked inside a prison, having worked with prison inve- investigators and gang investigators, They're incredibly competent, incredibly, um, integritous people who are doing a really difficult job. And I think that a lot of really kind of low hanging fruit, um, in these, you know, in in what's possible versus what's probable, ends up really shaping the American view on the prison system and what it's like to be in prison. And I I I think think that's true. Yeah,
1: I think that's true. you know, in a prison system like uh, California, uh, we've got, I think, 32 prisons, uh, over 100 and almost 140,000 inmates. You know, in the system, mm-hmm. um, any any system that large, you're going to have staff that come to you. They're going to reflect the community. Mm-hmm. And are are there going to be a bad apple or two in the in the bushel? Yeah, just like there is in the in the community. Yep. But I think you're I think you're right that most of the staff that that I was able to work with over over my career are. Are in it to make it better. Uh, mm-hmm. They w- they want to have an impact on on public safety, and you know if their job is you know uh, prison gang investigations, then they, that's their focus. But yeah, in in fiction, there's always uh, a focus on you know some some corrupt cop, um, you know, and it, it makes for good good fiction. But you know to try to roll that out as a as a actual representation for what's going on. Um, yeah, I, I, that's just not my experience.
0: Yeah, and, you know, I, I liken it, um, to, I have a little bit of background in, in radiation safety and security, and I liken it to a lot of the 1950s, 1960s pop culture about, you know, like, Spider-Man gets created because he's bit by a radioactive spider, right? And, mm-hmm. you know, Incredible Hulk and all these, you know, it glows green and you melt, and all these things happen when you get irradiated, that over time, become the public perception. and it, it, It's this, the fiction becomes reality in the public eye. And I really think a lot of the, for me, a lot of the area in public debate um, on prison reforms or prison purpose or private versus public prisons, I think so much of that ends up getting shaped entirely by fiction. And the people like you who have real world experience in actually working in these facilities, and actually working with these folks, um, I think you end up really kind of losing a, a voice in this whole process and getting drowned out.
1: I think that's true. And it, like you said, the public debate is, is really formed by, by perception, and whether that's you know, Kim Kardashian and Kanye West, or,
0: mm-hmm.
1: or, or what have you. And I think like most branches of, of law enforcement, we don't do a good job talking about ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, we're kind of, we're kind of quiet, isolated, you know, leave us alone, mm-hmm. let us do our job. But I think in the long run, that doesn't, uh, it doesn't tell and inform the public on what this part of the public safety net, uh, does.
0: No. And I, I think this is, uh, I think of all the areas of the law enforcement umbrella, even, you know, from, even from my own experience inside a portion of that, I think that your world is probably the most mysterious, because folks have the least experience with its authenticity with it in actuality. And, you know, there's so many police shows that eventually get some kind of technical advisor, mm-hmm. but I don't think a lot of, a lot of light gets shined on on the daily realities of the hardship of what it's like, um, you know, the victories and the, the, the difficulties of working inside your facilities. Um, from a writer's perspective, um, w- can you kind of walk us, uh, the listeners, uh, potential writers through, uh, like a, a daily life in, uh, for a detention officer?
1: Sure. Um, and it, it's a, it, one story that I, that I tell at um, uh, at events that I, that I hold is, it, this is how I started my day. I, I worked in a, in a unit. Um, this was at Folsom prison, uh, wow. back, at, back in, oh, probably early 80s, mid-1980s. Okay. Uh, this was a, a security housing unit. Uh, this was before the days of Corcoran and Pelican Bay. Mm-hmm. Um, a security housing unit was if you were a, an inmate in any other prison and you were difficult to manage and you started stabbing other inmates, which is frowned, frowned upon, yep. <laughs> uh, you, you were basically sentenced to the security housing unit. So, okay. so my unit uh, was one of uh, a, a handful that housed, you know, the most violent, the uh, the Aryan Brotherhood, Mexican Mafia, Black Guerrilla Family leaders, assaultive inmates, um, you know, and they were housed in my unit. So every every morning, I'd have to walk down the tier, and we had, you know, the old fashioned um, open cell bar, you know, five story uh, tiered uh, cell block, um, and my office was at the far end of the tier. So every morning you'd walk down the tier and you kind of get a, a feel for for what the day was going to be like. And there's, there's a, a feeling that correctional officers and correctional staff have, um, you know, they can sense the tone in the unit. Um, there's a book by Jack Abbott called The Belly of the Beast, and mm-hmm. in that he talks about the atmospheric pressure um, in the prison, and that's written from, a, from an inmate's perspective. But it's it's really true. You can feel what's going to happen in the unit. And one indicator for me was there was a cell towards the end of the, of the cell block where um, this assaultive inmate, um, he would either throw stuff at you or ignore you. And that was how you started your day. It was, you know, he's going to ignore me. Okay, it's going to be a good day. But I, I started walking down the tier and I noticed on his cell bars, he had these elaborate little sculptures you know he had sculpted little rabbits and squirrels and birds you know intricately done and they were actually pretty good until i realized he made them out of his own poop <laughs> so so if the birds and squirrels were there it was going to be a good day if not he's going to throw the you know the the raw ingredients at you as you walk down the cell uh down wow. the tier so that was kind of how you'd start your day in in the security housing unit back in uh, and Folsom of the day.
0: Wow, that's that, that's an incredible uh, incredible gauge of what the office environment's going to be. You know, <laughs> it's a, a litmus test, unlike many others. Yeah. Uh, one of the things that about prison and prison life that's kind of always fascinated me personally is um, the notoriety of uh, of really famous um, famous prisoners, famous criminals like serial killers, those kind of folks. Uh, specifically sure. with the, the fan base that they develop of people who, you know, start writing into them, want to become friends and acquaintances with them or want to marry them um, after right. they're convicted. Right. Um, you know, obviously, you know, I, I don't want to, you know, get too much insight, but how, how do you as an administrator deal with, with those kind of things?
1: Well, there's, there's, there's a real attraction to death row inmates. Um and it's not just in California that there there are um prison groupies and death row groupies who mm-hmm. are attracted to you know start up a relationship and some have married married these guys behind bars. Uh, and there's been some some studies and some psychological evaluations of of both both sides of the relationship. And it's like um these are actually considered safe relationships for women who have been abused before because they can have this, this edgy kind of relationship with a guy, but it's safe because he's behind bars.
0: Yeah. Uh, okay. So
1: it's, it's some way to kind of work through uh, some emotional uh, issues that they've had from previous relationships, but, but it, uh, you know, it's done in a way that they aren't, um, you know, at risk. So it's, it's a little bit of uh, uh, I guess, edgy experimentation for them, but I understand it. Um, but we've seen, we've seen, you know, officers fall for inmates uh, in prison, wow. uh, both, both male and female in the, in the women's prisons and in, uh, in the men's prisons. And it, it does happen. Uh, but um, I can't, uh, I I don't understand what that relationship would be so attractive to toss, you know, everything uh, away for, our, for, for, guy who's doing you know joy rides and stuff
0: yeah yeah that's um i hadn't realized the uh, the correlation there between the, the that abusive past i mean that really kind of makes sense that folks on the outside are are able to have this this bad boy um but without the the danger of actually having them in their lives you know right. I mean, their uh, parole hearings must be terrifying for these folks you know
1: yeah you'd wonder that okay i've, I've established this this Sort of life with this guy, and mm-hmm. and now might he be coming back out and yeah yeah, so. you know,
0: I guess you write the letter, you know baby I 'm praying for you, and then cross your fingers that it doesn 't happen it doesn't happen right um, so on that, you kind of touched on a, a little bit with the um, the relationships with staff um, from from my perspective the the insider threat in law enforcement is one of the the biggest problem areas that we have somebody. Who either got through the hiring process and shouldn't have ever been there to begin with, or they got in, their life changes, their psychology changes, and then they start playing for the other team, whomever that may be. Sure. And from a, um, a standpoint working inside the the prisons, I mean, this you know is a, a pretty continuous plot point, you know, for a lot of folks that you know the guard or is helping bring in contraband, the guards are having relationships, the guards are abusing. Uh, the, the inmates. Um, and kind of said earlier, you know, it makes for, for good fiction, but I, I have to believe that is so far from, from the reality. Um, can you kind of talk about that insider threat a little bit and how that actually plays out?
1: Sure. It, I mean, it does happen. Look at what happened in New York at Danamora. You had, you know, the two guys who escaped, but basically with the assistance of the, the one, um, correctional staff member there. Mm -hmm. But I mean, it does happen in in California. We've had instances that, uh, you know, staff do smuggle in uh, drugs and cell phones in particular are the big, uh, the big high, high item on the black market. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, they basically get compromised by an inmate. Um, Maybe they get them to do something, you know, just a little bit shady and then they kind of hold that over Mm -hmm. their head and that grows into, we'll bring me this. and, And then, before you know it, you're, you're hooked. Um, it, it does happen and it's, uh, it is a a significant threat, uh, particularly when you're talking about cell phones, uh, because we've had gang members, uh, use cell phones to contact, you know, their counterparts out in the street and continue their, their criminal enterprise. So it's, it's, it's
0: an issue. It's a lot easier to be a shot caller in prison if you've got that, (laughs) that cell phone that's not recorded and monitored. Yeah. Right. Exactly. The, um, with um, the folks that are that are uh, smuggling all these things in, it it kind of you know seems to me a, a relationship very akin to you know growing up in like a, a mob-controlled neighborhood that you know you you kind of do that that one little favor and then you know then you're hooked. Bef- yeah, before and then once they have that to hang over your head, I mean it's it's your whole livelihood, your whole life, and you know how do you? How do you recover right. from that, you know? And it's uh, it's an, a, a really tough choice for people to be in, and um, I think, unfortunately, compromises a lot of good people.
1: It it does, and the potential is there. Uh, we hit it very heavy in the academy when, when mm-hmm. the new uh, cadets are coming through, uh, but until you actually see it and watch it unroll, uh, you know, on the yard for yourself, mm-hmm. uh, it it's pretty insidious. It's, I mean that's what they've they've got all the time in the world to figure out the angles so. Yep. They're they're good at it.
0: Yeah, and, and that's you know that's the, you know, uh, from when we encounter these folks on the on the outside, you know, one of the things that concerns us is that they have had all this time and right. you know that they're able to, you know, talk to inmates um, who you know they had different experiences in different places or. You know, they've just recently come into the jail, so the guy that just came in can share tactics about how the cops arrested him or how they try to control him with the guy that's about to get out. And um, you know, you can really get a PhD, and from my perspective, a, you know, a PhD in in violence and criminality um, from the folks that are that are surrounding these guys, and then they kind of perpetuate and come back out on the street.
1: Uh, you can, and you can you can watch when new, uh, particularly the ones who are affiliated with the with the gangs there's there 's almost like a uh, a little training course that goes on about okay these are the staff that you know are a little bit weak or that you might be able to get over on these are the ones that you don 't bother with uh, they don 't bother us you don 't bother them uh, that kind of thing so there's there 's kind of an orientation that happens for for new gang members as they come into the unit
0: again from a total outside perspective i I see a lot of the current debate in like reform and rehabilitation versus punishment of what the philosophy in prison is supposed to be. A lot of that seems very analogous to me in dealing with, um, with addictions and, you know, until someone is ready to change their life until they're ready to get help until they've hit some kind of rock bottom and they have this, this schism that motivates them to change the way they've done everything in their entire experience. I, I don't that there's any opportunity, no matter what we do, to actually gain any traction. Um, has that been analogous for you at all?
1: Well, it, it hasn't, it hasn't. I mean, California just recently got hit with a, an audit on some of their rehabilitation programs weren't as effective as they hoped they would be. Mm-hmm. Uh, recently, California released a bunch of uh, nonviolent uh, offenders and basically said that, you know, we're going to apply the savings from that. Uh, a, to rehabilitation programs, but the the programs themselves didn't have any any meaningful impact. And I think what happened is California got away from what they knew were effective rehabilitation programs and went for something shorter and cheaper, and yeah. uh, you know, they wanted to mass market something. Uh, there's been plenty of research on, and you mentioned it, uh, the drug offenses. Um, we had in California at one point a rather robust therapeutic community program in several prisons, where offenders would come in and they'd spend, you know, about a about a year uh, in a single housing unit in this program, and then they parole from that program to uh, a treatment center in the community uh, and continue that 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 level of care. Now that model uh, was effective and it did reduce recidivism, but it's expensive. So, I think the department uh, kind of cheaped out and went for something that was easy to sell, but it doesn't have the same impact. Uh, education programs work. Uh, there's a, a great public or a, a prison inter, industry program in California that's doing some cutting edge kinds of things with uh, computer coding and electronics and, and that kind of thing that's showing a, a real marked decrease in, in recidivism. And again, it's getting the right inmate to the right program. Um, and we have found that even inmates who haven't hit that, that bottom, that rock bottom level uh, once you get them into the program and you start to get their buy-in, then uh, they kind of gravitate toward the program and, and, and work it. And it, it seems to work for them.
0: Well, that's, you know, that's a uh, much better news than, than, than I expected. You know, it's um, you know, with me having to assume this was more analogous to, to, you know, uh, normal addiction. And, you know, there's, you know, such a, a low level of, you know, first time recovery and even fifth, right. eighth time recovery on, you know, the addiction issues. Cause I think, you know, lifestyle and traumas, and those other things also contribute to it. Sure. Um, you know, that's, I, I would really like to see us as a society invest much more wisely and heavily in these rehab and re- uh, rehabilitation programs that, you know, or are trying to get the guys who are interested and invested in changing their lives, that give them the ability to do that. I personally, very, um, I guess, ideologically, believe in second chances. And well, I think it makes it makes
1: yeah, it it makes good public safety sense too, because mm-hmm. most of the most of the inmate population in prisons throughout the country, they're coming back home. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if you don't do something to change their uh, their thought process and coping abilities and skills before they come out, uh, you're going to have the same result. So you do need to invest in, in the right kind of program for the right kind of inmate and reduce the, uh, the public safety risk.
0: Yeah. I, that sounds fantastic to me. I'll, I'll, I'll vote for you whenever you're ready to run.
1: <laughs> no, thank you. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so, uh, being uh, being respectful of, uh, of your time here uh, a couple last questions sure uh, what are who's your favorite fictional detective and your favorite crime show
1: oh wow um, I've got a lot of favorite fictional detectives I really like uh, what David Putnam is doing with mm-hmm. with his series I like uh, Matt coyle like Bruce Bruce coffin uh, and uh, Rachel housel Hall uh, writes a great book Uh, detective series. I think, I think you're going to see Rachel uh, in in years to come be the next Michael Conley. Wow. Uh, I think she's that good. She's that talented.
0: That's incredibly impressive. Yeah. A a really high yardstick to aim for there. Yeah, she's great. And what would you most like readers to take away from your work? Um,
1: I I want them to enjoy the story. You kind of get immersed in, in this, in this different world of of crime and criminals and and that kind of stuff, but there's also a backstory to the um, the law enforcement professionals in the book uh, in, in the books. Like for example, in At What Cost, the the main detective uh, is battling a, a serial killer who's out you know harvesting victims' uh, organs. And at the same time, his son needs a a kidney transplant, so his moral dilemma is: Does he you know go after the serial killer, or does he make a deal with the with the suspect to get the organ that his son needs to survive. So wow. it's that kind of family dynamic and the, the fallout from all of that, that uh, I think um, makes the story a little, a little bit different than the, the straight uh, typical procedural.
0: Yeah. That, that's an impossible moral dilemma that he's you're you're forcing him to navigate through. Yeah. Well, James, I greatly appreciate you coming out and talking to us. Uh, you've been listening to, Writers on the Beat, a proud part of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. I'm your host, Gavin Reese, and our critically acclaimed guest today has been author James Latwell. Until next time, take care of yourselves and each other. Be safe out there.